children, come on down, because it is children's time with Raymond. Make your way on down here, kids. Good morning. Y'all doing well? I'm really glad you're at church. Are you glad you're at church? Good. I got a couple questions, and maybe one of those would be, is it better to stay home on Sunday or to come to church? Church, I agree. That's much better. Let me ask you another one. Is it better to go to school or get out of school? Yeah, that was not quite as tough. How about this one? Is it better to look at ice cream or to eat ice cream? Mm, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty easy one, huh? How about this one? Is it better to drive by Chick-fil-A? Or to drive through Chick-fil-A? Drive through. Mm. Yeah, because you get some food. That, that way you get some food, right? Yeah? How about this one? Let's personalize a little bit more. Is it better to hear someone else tell you that your mom loves you or for your mom to say, I love you? Mom. Mom, yeah. Because if someone else said it, I they wouldn't really know. They might have know. But here's one for you. You have to think about this one. Is it better to do what we want or what Jesus wants? Yeah, that's, it sounds pretty easy, doesn't it? Until Jesus says, I don't want to eat ice cream. And you say, I do want to eat ice cream. It's easy for us to say that, yeah, it's always better. And it is better, but sometimes it's hard. And today's story piece of history that we're going to talk about is that piece of history that tells us about Lazarus 
And his sisters and some other people had some really hard times because Jesus had something better, but they thought it wasn't. And we're going to listen to a story right now. Miss Catherine's going to tell us about an experience in her life in which she thought this was what God was going to do in her life, and God decided to do something else, and she's going to talk about how hard that was. Sometimes God has different plans, but you're right. We always need to remember that God's plans are always better than ours. So let's pray together, and we'll listen to Miss Catherine. God, thank you that your plans are always better, even though at times we have a difficult um, time of understanding that. But I pray that all of us would, whether we're five or we're 105, we'd always believe that your plans are better than ours, to trust you for that. Help us to listen to Catherine's story, to be reminded of that, and we pray that you would teach us through the experience of Lazarus' death, something that we need to hear today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, guys, let's turn the lights out and we'll go watch this video together. Hi, my name is Catherine Entrican, and my husband and I are relatively new to Westgate Memorial. Um, I became a Christian when I was in elementary school and in middle and high school, I made my faith my own um, and really took on my relationship with the Lord for myself. Um, rather than relying on, on my parents for that. Um, when I was in high school, while I was on a mission trip, I felt the Lord calling me to become a veterinarian. Um, and because that's a really intimidating career path, um, in college, each time I would start a new class or had a new project or internship or something like that, um, I was really uh, prayerful and um, dependent on the Lord through that whole process because... Um, there, there are some tough classes and um, the professors are all really intimidating. And so every time I would start something new, I would, I would just hold it up to the Lord and surrender and say, God, if this is where you want me, please make that clear. And if this is not where you want me, um, please show me that too, because I don't, I don't want to be where you don't want me. Um, but each year um, I felt like the Lord was confirming that, that that's what he was calling me to. Um, and so after I finished undergrad, I started my first year of vet school. Um, backing up a little bit, when I was a freshman, I met my now husband and we started dating. Um, and so when I was halfway through my first year of vet school, we got married. And he was really supportive of me becoming a vet. Um, and he had tried to find jobs in Texas, um, but his career was is not necessarily um, in that part of the state. And so the job that he was offered was in Mississippi. And so when we were about a month out from um, getting married, the, the weight of the decision that was ahead of me um, kind of hit me in the face. And I realized that I could either choose to quit vet school um, or I could, uh, we could, we could get married and I could, stay in vet school and we could start off marriage long distance for four years, um, several states away. And so um, just as confidently as each time I'd taken a new step in my, in my college path towards becoming a vet, um, at, this, at that moment, I, I just as confidently felt like the Lord was calling me to quit. Um, and most of the people in my life did not understand that decision at the time. I didn't understand it at the time, um, but I, I knew that that was what the Lord was calling me to. And so 
Um, it was it was a tough transition. It was very jarring. Um, I've never I never regretted the decision to quit because I was confident that that's what God was calling me to. Um, but I did grieve the loss of pursuing something I was passionate about, um, of feeling like I was walking closely with the Lord towards a specific goal. Um, and I, I had a lot of security and confidence in knowing what my career path was going to be. Um, I'd been, I'd had that in my mind since high school that I'm going to be a vet and every, that people, that's what people knew me as. And so it was like my identity. It was a source of pride. Um, it was, it was an idol. It was, um, it was all kinds of things. Um, it was part of my walk with the Lord. It was, it was lots of good things and bad things. Um, but it, it was who I was. And so, um, the grieving process after I quit, um, was really challenging for me. Um, I was angry at the Lord that he didn't immediately replace that passion that I felt for, for vet school, um, with something else. Um, and I, I really wallowed in my pity party, um, for much longer than, um, I'm proud of because, um, I was mad at God that he'd interrupted my plans for my life, not just interrupted, but I felt like he crushed them completely. Um, and so I didn't, I wasn't trusting in the Lord's goodness at that time. I didn't see God as, as good and loving because why would he take something away from me, um, like that, that, um, that had is that he'd been calling me to. Um, so several years removed, um, after, after counseling and, um, healing and, and prayer and processing and time, um, the Lord has graciously allowed me to see bits and pieces, um, of, of his plan and, and the, the good things that, um, he has in store for me without vet school being part of my life. Um, and so I, I don't claim to understand completely why the Lord um, called me so clearly in one direction and then and then turned me so clearly in another um, because our ways are not his ways. Um, but I do, I do trust in God's sovereignty and his faithfulness. Um, and I know that his plan is so much bigger for me than, than the plans I have for myself. And so, um, I'm thankful to get to be a part of his story. Um, I'm thankful that his story doesn't revolve around me. Um, and I'm, I'm thankful for, for that journey as hard as it has been, um, and as hard as it was to, um, to get to see God's, God's face and God's character and, um, for him to sanctify me through that process. We appreciate Catherine sharing so transparently about a situation that would be similar to any of us. We've all had those disappointments with God and when it felt like that his plans were different than ours. Uh, Matt and Catherine are some of our newest members here at Westgate and they come to the first service, uh, but I hope that you'll take time to thank her for sharing so transparently with us because it reminds us of what we are talking about in John chapter 11. It's that time in which Jesus' public ministry draws to a close and he uh, has the experience of his dear friend, Lazarus, passing away. And the chapter is divided up into four different sections for us to kind of easily follow through. Uh, you have Lazarus becoming very ill to the point of death. And so his sisters, Mary and Martha, send a message to their dear friend Jesus 
telling him about the story in hopes that he will come back and he will heal Lazarus. But the second section is Jesus and his disciples responding to the message from Mary and Martha about Lazarus, and he stays there for two more days. Doesn't seem like his plans are aligning with their plans. And then Jesus comes back in the third section to the outskirts of Bethany, and we saw last week the conversation with Martha. Today we'll have the conversation with Mary, and this third section is where Jesus is conversing with Martha and Mary about the situation of Lazarus dying. He's been dead four days now, and today we, we come to the tomb, but it reminds us that God sometimes has other plans than we do. You think about Mary and Martha, they both said the exact same thing when they saw Jesus. If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. Have you ever said that in life? Sure we have. We've all had those experiences, and we will have those experiences in our life. Lord, if you had followed my plans, this wouldn't have happened. Last week, as we were talking about ways that we can deal with God's plans being different than ours, we were reminded of some principles and truths from this particular piece of history that will assist us. And one of those is to remember that God's timing is different than ours. He lives in a completely different time zone. God is not limited to the time-space continuum that we are. He has no limits. Nothing is above his pay grade. Nothing is impossible for God. And that's why we should never put a period where God puts a comma. Everybody was putting a period there to say, Lazarus is dead. It's over. And Jesus says, no, it's just a comma. That's why when we go back to John 11, Jesus said, this will not end in death. What's so unique about those four sections in this particular uh, piece of history is that when the message about Lazarus being sick finally arrived to Jesus, it would take the messenger one day to get there. By the time the message was there, Lazarus was probably already dead. And Jesus, knowing that in his omniscience, says, this will not end in death. But if we could look at the whole story, we would say it already has ended in death. And Jesus is saying, I'm not limited to even the restrictions of death itself. Remember, God lives in a different time zone. And secondly, remember that God has a, a different target. Jesus, when he delayed coming back, and everybody was confused. I mean, if Lazarus is that sick and you're that close of friends, why don't you go back now and heal him? And Jesus says, we're going to just stay here for a couple days. Basically to say to make sure he's good and dead. And he says, and that is for God's glory. God will receive so much more glory by seeing a man raised from the dead than a man simply healed. Our target in life is comfort and security. We like to be comfortable. We like to be secure financially, relationally, and otherwise. But God's target is different. His target is his own glory. And Jesus responding to the disciples who said, hey, listen, if we go back, we won't be comfortable because the last time we were there, they tried to kill us. And what Jesus is saying is, guys, I understand your concern, your target is comfort and security, so you don't want to face that danger. But Jesus said, my target is the glory of God. And that's why we will 
go back. You see, our greatest need is to see and experience the glory of God in our lives. What is the glory? We, we tend to think of glory as this magnificent light, and that indeed describes God. But God's glory is seeing him as he really is. That's what this story is about. When we go through the experience of Lazarus dying and then being raised back to life, Jesus is communicating who he really is. And we're going to see the struggle that those individuals here have. But we're reminded that our hope is not in something. It is in someone. And when God has other plans, remember his tenderness. It's interesting as you look back at John 11, verse 5, it says that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Agape love. That's the word used there. It's a Greek word that means unstoppable divine love. It's the, it's the most difficult love for us to experience. Because our love is oftentimes conditional, restrictive, limited. But God's love is not. And it says that he loved, notice the way it's phrased there, that he loved Martha and her sister. That's an interesting phrase there. And I think John had intent, because when you think back to Luke chapter 10, we have the experience of Jesus visiting in which Martha is very bothered about a lot of things, trying to get the meal prepared and ready. And she is saying, Lord, you need to get my sister off of her duff to get over here and help me with the meal. And Jesus kind of scolded Martha. He said, Martha, you worry about so many things. But Mary has chosen the important thing of focusing on me. So, we look at this and we say, maybe Jesus liked Mary better than Martha, but it says in this passage that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and her brother. It's interesting to note the tenderness of God. Jesus loves us more than we can imagine. And as we said last week, he loves us more than we love him. And therein lies the problem. We get tangled up with projection. We know how we love Jesus, and we think he probably loves us the same way with limits and conditions and expectations. But Jesus loves us far more than we will ever be able to comprehend and far more than we love him. So when times get tough in life, remember Jesus' tenderness, that he loves us unconditionally. So that kind of carried us through the first three sections of, of John chapter 11. And today we arrive at the tomb. But before we go there, we need to revisit Jesus' conversation with Mary. As we deal with the disappointments in our life, and all of us have them, when God's plans aren't necessarily our plans, there are a few more principles in John chapter 11 some disciplines, some truths, some realities that I think will help us in dealing with our own disappointments in life. Let's look at John chapter 11, verses 28 through 29, as we think through the conversation again. We are in that section when Jesus has come back. He hasn't come all the way into Bethany yet. He's traversed the 20 miles from where he was after receiving the message. One day for the message to get to him. Two days that he waited. A day to travel back. Here's the fourth day after Lazarus has been in the tomb. Jesus has had a conversation with Martha. And then we pick it up in verse 28. And it says, after she had said this, and this was Martha's great declaration of who Jesus is, 
Though for her, it was more about words than truly understanding it in the depths of her heart, which is a struggle for most of us. Sometimes our theology is stronger than our practice. And it says that she called her sister Mary aside and said, the teacher is here and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and and went to him. Even in Mary's grief about losing her brother, who she dearly loved and who would have been the primary breadwinner in in the household, in her grief, she understood something that we all need to know when it feels like God's plans are different than our plans. Mary understood that Jesus knows who we are, he knows where we are, and he knows what we're going through. When life is not going the way that you would desire, one of the easiest things for us is to feel abandoned by God. To feel as if God has forgotten us. But friends, we are not a nameless face to God. And David would write Psalm 139. And in that psalm, he would make these statements, declaring boldly, God, you know me. You know everything about me. You're the one who knit me together in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed body. That doesn't even sound that impressive to us today because we have ultrasounds and we can look and see a baby moving around there. But this was millennia before there were any ultrasounds. And David is saying, what no one else can see, you saw. See, sometimes we feel like no one else sees or understands, but David said, yes, God does. You know everything about me. Your thoughts of me, they outnumber the grains of sand along the ocean beach. Wow. So when Jesus asked for Mary, he wasn't just calling her name. He was saying, I know everything about you, just like he does for you and for me. When you feel disappointed with God, remember, he knows who you are. And he knows where you are. It's interesting how pain can leave us feeling so lonely in life. We can feel like our experience is uniquely different and harder than anyone else's. We can feel lonely in the midst of a crowd. And can I say something just parenthetically to us as a church family? There are people in this room right now who feel that way. And we as a church need to make sure that they don't leave lonely. Shame on us if we just hover around the people that we know. And we don't pay attention to those that are sitting around us. Taking time to to know who they are, something of their story, to look into their eyes with a smile, to value and treasure them. See, here was Mary sitting in the midst of her house with all of these who had gathered. This was a major event. This was a very popular, well-known family. 
People had come from Jerusalem two miles away, people in Bethany, they'd come over to the house, and the morning tradition was that people would come into your house and they would sit with you. All the furniture would be pushed aside, and then people would sit with you for a week. And they would kind of take a page from Job, and rather than say a lot, they would just sit there and they would cry, they would weep, they would go over and hug you, and occasionally they would say something, but it was pretty quiet. And here is Mary surrounded by all of these people in her house, grieving the loss of her brother, and she felt very much alone, like maybe some of us feel even now. You know, when we think about David, we oftentimes remember his great victories, but we don't want to forget the failures and the disappointments in his life as well, and Psalm 34 alludes to one of those times. It was a time in which David felt as if God had different plans than he had. Psalm 34 is a psalm written when David is being pursued by his father-in-law, Saul. And he fled from Saul, and he went to the town of the Philistines, in which he pretended to be insane so that the Philistines wouldn't kill him. He thought, if I act crazy, they won't see me as any kind of threat, and they'll let me stay here so I can be protected from my father-in-law who is trying to kill me. Here is David, who has already killed Goliath. He's already been anointed to be king. Yet it seems like God's plans are so different than his. And in Psalm 34, verse 18, he reminds himself, and he reminds us today when he would write, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. When your heart is crushed, you heard Catherine talk about the, the crushing blow of her dreams being crushed. We can be reminded that God is close to us because he knows exactly where we are. See, Jesus traveled a long way to be with Mary and Martha. He traveled a day's journey, a 20-mile walk, and he came to be with them. Why? Because he knew where they were and he wanted to be with them in their pain. And friends, when God's plans are different than yours, Know that God will be with you, even when the plans seem so wrong. We'll go back to Psalm 139. And David said there, he said, I could go to the heights of heaven or the depths of the sea, and you would still be right there with me, no matter where we go. As followers of Christ, God is with us. He goes on to say, your right hand guides me and holds me fast. When we feel disoriented, confused, disappointed, even disillusioned, God guides us with his hand and he holds us fast. It literally means to hold us so that we won't be let go. Romans chapter 8, Paul would emphatically say, say something very similar. He said, there's absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Not even death itself. We were never created to experience death. And that's why at the end of the book of Revelation, it says that death will be destroyed. It's our last great enemy. It'll be, it'll be conquered. And that's why death confuses us and disorients us and makes us feel so much like Mary and Martha and those that were mourning there. But Paul would say even death itself can't separate us from the love of God. So when God has other plans... Remember that Jesus knows who you are, and he knows where you are, and he knows what 
you're going through. Look at John chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. It says, when Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see. In verse 35, Jesus wept. Then the Jews responded by saying, see how he, how he loved him. John 11.35 is maybe your favorite verse to memorize. It's the shortest verse of the Bible. And oftentimes throughout ministry, I've heard people say, um, my favorite verse is John 11.35, Jesus wept, because basically it's the only one I can remember in its entirety. We say it to get a laugh, but it is, it is a verse that is overflowing with reality that, that God knows what we're going through. When we read that in the English language, Mary's weeping, the Jews are weeping, and then it says Jesus wept. It's the same English word, and it sounds like, well, they're all just crying the same. But in the original language in the Greek, there are different words that are used. It's saying that Mary and the Jews are wailing hopelessly because they recognize the period has come. Death has arrived. Lazarus is gone, and he's not coming back. And so they're wailing in hopelessness that he is not going to be with them anymore. But when it comes to the word, it says Jesus wept. It means that tears streamed down his face. He's not weeping hopelessly. He's crying with a broken heart over the harsh reality of death and to see the agony that it's causing in his dear friends and what it has done to his friend Lazarus. And he's also crying because of the lack of understanding as to who he is. They were unable to comprehend what Jesus could do and what Jesus would do. Look at verse 37. Some of them said, could not the one who opened the eyes of the blind, could he have not kept this man from dying? That was the, that was the scope of their imagination. All they could figure is, if he had been here, Lazarus might not have died. Maybe he could have prevented this. They couldn't even comprehend the magnitude of what Jesus was going to do. Many of you will remember the experiences of 9-11. 20 years ago, this coming September, I remember being at home on a Tuesday morning, I was studying, had the, the radio playing in the background, just listening. And I heard that a, a plane had flown into one of the Twin Towers in New York City. And the initial report made it sound like it was maybe a private plane that had gone off track and run into the building. And it, it wasn't that big a news. If you think about when the plane went into the Empire State Building and thought, you know, it's just a small plane, not much damage. And and then later on, I, Jeff had called me, and he said, do you have the news on? I said, no, I'm, I'm studying. And he said, you need to turn the news on. One of the towers has fallen. And I thought, okay, maybe they had a fire, and, you know, it's a big deal. Part of the building falls off at the very top from the fire. And to turn on the television to see that the entire tower had fallen, it was absolutely Unbelievable. I had no category for that. None of us did. 
We had no comprehension when you see the smoke coming up. There is no comprehension in anybody's mind that those things are going to fall. And that's the way it was here. Nobody could even begin to comprehend what Jesus was about to do. They were trying to imagine what Jesus might have prevented while Jesus is just moments away from doing what he's about to do. Jesus knew what was going to happen before the message even got to him that Lazarus was sick. Let's go back and look at John chapter 11, verses 38 through the rest of uh, verse 43. It says, Jesus once more deeply moved. And again, what is happening inside of Jesus, there is this sense of anger and angst about the power and the consequence of sin that he has come to defeat He's also in anguish that they just can't see who he is. So he came to the cave with a stone laid across the entrance. And again, to just rehearse what is happening here is the burial custom back then was not to be buried into the ground, but oftentimes buried in a natural cave or a cave that was carved out of the rock. There are many times you would have... Uh, Family members is numbering 8, 10, 12 people buried in the same little sepulcher. So they would put the body in there, and then they would roll a stone over the front to keep the robbers out, to keep the animals out, and to keep the stench from coming out. And so here's where they are. They've, they've come to the grave, and Jesus is asked, where have you laid him? Did he have any idea? Was he confused? A very important part of that question is not that Jesus is not omniscient because he knows everything. But he didn't want anybody to think that he knew exactly where Lazarus was and there had been some kind of prearranged setup in which somebody had been switched out with Lazarus and then when he said, Lazarus, come forth, it was a different guy. And he goes on to say, take away the stone that's in front of the grave. And Martha responded by saying, but Lord... See, here's a great interruption. Martha was saying, if you had followed our plans and gotten here before Lazarus died, we wouldn't be here right now. He would be healed and would all be happy. And Jesus responds to her concern that there's a bad odor by saying, I tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. You had your plan for him to be healed. And everybody would have celebrated that, but they would have forgotten it. And I have a different plan in which not only will Lazarus come back to life, but you will see who I literally am. You will see the glory of God, which means to see God as he really is. See, friends, it's impossible for us to overestimate God. And it's equally impossible for us to not underestimate him. And that's exactly where they were. Notice what the story says. So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. He knew what was going to happen they had already prayed about it. He and the Father had already talked about it. The plan was set. But he goes on to say, 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. So here is Jesus saying, Lord, I'm praying to you so that everybody around here can understand our relationship and the power within that relationship. And then he said, Jesus called with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Why did he do it in a loud voice? A couple of reasons, I think. Number one, there were a lot of magicians and sorcerers and those who were involved in divination and they would mumble something quietly and then they would do their magic trick and everybody would be enamored. Jesus wanted them to clearly hear that a dead body is going to respond to his voice. He also was painting a picture of what he would do. A time will come, Paul would write in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, in which there will be a loud command from our Savior, which God's people are gathered together, in which we are brought back from death to life. In a loud voice, he says, Lazarus, come out, so everybody is fixated. Why? Because you can only imagine, as they were all hovered around there, could have been 100-plus people there. And they're all hovered around the, 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 the grave, and Jesus said, move the stone out, and all of a sudden, there's all this whispering, of what in the world's going on? What's going to happen next? There might have been this commotion, and then Jesus speaks, Lazarus, come out. Did Lazarus need the loud shout? No. God speaks to us as he did to Elijah so many times in that still, small voice. May not have even been Jesus' words that he heard. He could have just heard the Spirit of God speaking into his mind, and all of a sudden his eyes opened up, and listen to what happens. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. That was the tradition. That was what Jesus would be buried just the same way. That's why John writes about this. He wants us to understand that Lazarus was indeed dead. They hadn't mistaken him as being sick. He had been wrapped for burial with about 75 to 100 pounds of perfume that had been wrapped around in cloths around him. And then there was this cloth that was hung over his head. And here comes Lazarus out in all of the grave clothes, in all of his grave attire. And it says, Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Why didn't Jesus finish the miracle? I mean, couldn't he have just said, clothes, come off. And all the grave clothes would have fallen off. But I think there's another meaning here. For one... He wanted everybody to see the grave clothes because in just a few weeks, he would be resurrected. This is a resuscitation. In a few weeks, he would be resurrected and he would leave his grave clothes in the grave because he would be resurrected to a new glory and come right through those clothes. But Lazarus is still in the human reality. He's not being resurrected. He's being brought back to life. When we are resurrected like Christ, we will have a new reality, a new body, a new experience, uniquely different than what we have here. And there's another reason, I believe, he said, take the, the clothes off. Every person that was there 
knew the stench of death. We live in a very sanitized culture in which few of us have ever smelled what death is like. We felt it, we've experienced it, but we haven't physically smelt it. Everyone there knew exactly what death smelled like. And so when Jesus, standing at a distance, maybe from here to the atrium, he didn't walk over to take the grave clothes off because he wanted those around to come up and to take the grave clothes off and to smell the stench of death to say, this man was really dead, but now he's alive. He has been brought back to life. So if we believe that Jesus knows who we are and where we are and what we're going through, why not let him help us? The name Lazarus literally means helped by God. And he was certainly helped by God. And that's a picture of who we are. Don't you wish that we had commentary about what Lazarus said after he was brought back to life? I mean, that's a disappointment for me. I would love to be able to read some next verses and Lazarus says, oh man, it was wild. You should have seen what I saw and where I was. It was unbelievable. I would love to hear that. But John didn't write about it. Why? Because Lazarus is not the central figure in this piece of history. Jesus is. The objective of him writing this chapter is not that we will see Lazarus, but we will see who Jesus is in all of his glory and the fact that death has absolutely no power over Jesus. John 20, verse 31, the purpose statement is John saying, I've written this so you would know that Jesus Christ really is the Son of God. And by knowing him, you would believe in him and experience life in his name. I think it is important for us to see Lazarus, though, because we're all just like him. We're dead unless God gives us life. We're hopeless unless Jesus helps us, helped by God. Have you been helped by God? The God that can do what nobody else can do? Have you allowed him to bring you back to spiritual life? We're all like Lazarus, separated from God by our sin. But because of God's enormous love for us and the fact that he has created us to have a relationship with him, Jesus came to literally bring us back to life. What God has called us to do is repent, humbly repent of our sins. That means that we will choose to say, God, I believe your plan is better than my plan, that your way is better than my sinful way. And I humbly repent of my sins, turn from my sins, and I will follow you, surrendering completely all that I am and all that I have. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, maybe someone within the room, someone that is joining us via online I pray that you would voice a prayer similar to the one that I will say in just a moment. And for all of us who are Christians, might you pray a portion of this prayer? 
to say, Lord, afresh today, I fully surrender all that I am and all that I have to you. Martha struggled with that at the tomb. But Lord, if we remove the stone, it'll cause more problems. How many times do we say to God, but Lord, I have a better idea. But maybe it's just us fully surrendering all that we are and all that we have to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the power of your word. We have heard today of this last and greatest miracle of yours before the greatest of all miracles when you came back to life, resurrected to newness. And God, it's reminded us that all of us without Christ are as helpless and as hopeless as Lazarus was in that grave. Only you can bring us back to life. Only you can save us from the penalty of sin. So if anyone in this room or watching with us online has never received Christ, might this be the moment that they pray a prayer similar to this. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner in desperate need of your forgiveness. Please forgive me of all my sins and become the Lord and Savior of my life. I surrender to you all that I am and all that I have. And I will follow hard after you the remaining days of my one and only life. God, for those of us who have already identified ourselves as followers of you, might this be a fresh moment in our lives in which we acknowledge that we want to continue following you, but maybe with a greater intensity maybe with a deeper commitment to say, Lord Jesus, I surrender to you all that I am and all that I have. No more but Lord's, you just say the word and my answer is yes. God, may we indeed follow hard after you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Love you all. Thanks for listening. And if you felt in the moment, God is calling you to receive him as Lord and Savior, and you prayed that prayer, you'd like more information about that. Know that there is a whole journey past that prayer. That is much like the wedding vows in which you begin the journey of a marriage. If you would like more information, know that you can use your phone to text Westgate to 94000. Just identify your name and number in there so we can be in touch with you and talk more about it. Or we'll have staff over by the windows here, by the crosses and out in the atrium if you want to talk or pray with someone. So as we enter into this final installment of worship today, let's stand together and respond to God the way that he is leading us.
Salvation 